bless you for being an angel just when it seemed that heaven was not for me hello and welcome to drunk church i am cosima b concordia and i'm aurora Leborn. today we are here for our third episode on our series of Sexuality Beyond Consent by Avki Saketapolo. And this is going to be on Chapter 2, The Draw to Overwhelm, Limit Consent, and the Retranslation of Enigma. So if you haven't already, we really recommend that you give the other two episodes a listen before you join us here today. Mm-hmm. And I think we're really getting into the meat of it here. I'm very excited about this one. Mm-hmm. So it begins with the Bataille quote. From his inner experience, it reads, there subsists in us a silent, elusive, ungraspable part. In the region of words, of discourse, this part is neglected and usually escapes us. Language is therefore dispossessed can say nothing, is limited to stealing these states from attention. Avgi introduces us to the main themes of the text via a vignette. This one is a little bit different because it's not initially from her clinical experience. So she introduces the issues through describing this play that is taking place between a mother and child. So Lumi, a four-year-old girl, is playing with her mother Imani, this game of monster. So she's describing the scenario where Lumi is like shrieking with delight to her mother, like, be the monster, mommy, be the monster. And the mother is chasing her around and like giggling and tickling her and being like, I'm going to eat you. Like this moment of joy. And she talks about how within it, this chase is occurring. And just before things get too intense, like the little girl shrieking with delight, the mother stops. So just short. And then eventually, like as this game continues, the daughter gets like a little frustrated. She's like, no, this time, like be the monster. And there's a moment of pause. So let's talk about this pause. So the little girl is saying, be the monster, mommy. Like we play mm-hmm. a different game. This time you keep going, you keep chasing me even after you snatch me. And you have to not stop or else it doesn't work. So even after Lumi says stop, she wants her mother to continue to go. And that that is how the game works. That is the only way for her to get what she wants. And she says, don't worry, let's just go on and on more Mm -hmm. and more. So the question of a safe limit, the question of risks it doesn't occur to the little girl doesn't worry her at all and that is what this chapter takes up so this playful exchange and what it reveals about consent psychic economy its ties to the infantile sexual and as well as a really remarkable critique of normative clinical notions of consent by uprooting it with this notion of the more and more, so this more and more that the little girl wants from her mother, this more and more that we all sort of want from our encounters. I also think maybe this chapter brings up the most 
practical examples for myself mm-hmm. in particular. I think it it really is a very rich text. Yeah. The question of knowing when to stop and when stop means stop and when stop doesn't mean stop is like very helpfully taken up in this chapter. Like for me at least that's the issue that I have in my relationships. <laughs> knowing when like no means no, like don't don't chase me versus like knowing when no means like yes, like I'm saying no, but like chase me a little bit, keep going a little bit more. Back to Avgi Saketofolo's earlier claim, it's about deconstructing how affirmative consent as we understand it, as this thing that's rooted in Hegelian dialectics and is about foregrounding clear communication to avoid misunderstandings in the hopes of fostering mutually satisfying experience in adult sexual encounters. And so part of the basis for this book is her arguing that affirmative consent cannot bear the weight of the complexities of the sexual. So instead, she's proposing the idea of limit consent as a way to think about that complexity that can actually handle how the sexual actually Mm -hmm. works. Versus these more shallow notions of consent that are concerned with satisfaction or that fall into these legalistic categories that make certain harms entirely unintelligible. Or that create harms where there otherwise aren't mm-hmm. or otherwise wouldn't be. So, for example, the notion that you can't consent to like BDSM. Mm-hmm. And if affirmative consent is the idea of sort of recreating this area of things that you have already consented to and discussed in detail, limit consent is a way of facilitating novelty and surprise. So as opposed to a positive dialectics, it's grounded in negative dialectics. Limit consent recognizes that even careful interpersonal negotiations leave behind a remainder that cannot be eliminated. Her point about the problem with affirmative consent is it assumes that we understand and know ourselves, whereas the self is always opaque to ourselves. And part of the asexual encounter is part of that opaqueness being revealed in the other, but also being revealed in ourselves. It's an encounter with ourselves just as much as it's an encounter with the other. Mm -hmm. Because we don't fully understand what it is that we've consented to or what we've failed to consent to or what it is that we want until we've experienced it. So there's a non-linear aspect to limit consent, to quote. In contrast to affirmative consent, limit consent hinges not on respecting limits, but on their ethical transgression. Limit consent runs on nonlinear time, blurs the divide between active and passive, and comes dangerously close to the line of something gone wrong. Why play with fire at all? Because, I propose, limit consent enables the pursuit of states of overwhelm. Part of the thing that is hard about talking about limit consent and has been kind of the difficulty of this book and the difficulty of us going into this project is that as opposed to affirmative consent, which seeks to make sex a space of safety where harm cannot occur, limit consent is inherently recognizing that sex is a messy place to be in, that it is something where harm can always occur. It's 
blurring the lines between active and passive. It's running on nonlinear time. And it comes dangerously close to the line of something gone wrong. Instead of like shirking back from those things, it's saying that those things are actually important. And the reason that they're important is because it is able to accomplish states of overwhelm. Mm-hmm. And so overwhelm is an extreme state that can bring about ego shattering, a radical unbinding of the ego. And overwhelm opens us up to actual risk. So mm-hmm. it's not just a thrill. It is inherently a risk. It's acknowledging that the sexual is something where we are putting ourselves at risk at others and then trying to create a framework so that we can go into that space ethically so that we are trying to minimize harm and then if harm occurs being able to like address it meaningfully Mm -hmm. as opposed to going into a framework where we're pretending that we can eliminate harm itself. Yeah I think it's really important to note too that because this flies in the face of a lot of very well-established feminist insights that it's difficult, but it also is connected to similar conversations that have been happening for a long time. So what comes to mind with this notion of playing with fire, so why play with fire at all, is Lynn Phillips' work, Flirting with Danger. So in it, she interviews a group of survivors of sexual assault, and they talk about how the pervasive arguments for understanding sexual violence don't fit into their narratives. So they're problematizing these notions of what constitutes harm, what constitutes consent. Like they're showing that there always is that gray. And in fact, the inability to embrace that gray is what makes their understanding of their experiences like unspeakable. So notions like violation is always about harm or about domination that it's not about sex, those truisms. Very important, I think, to note and to connect it with that literature. I think it's necessary to understand how play functions, especially like in a leather or like BDSM context. You know, sex is thought about play and play is this like much more expansive realm. But then play is, as Avgi puts it, and as is true in all good play, what ensues is both real and not real. So that it has to be inventive and imaginative in a way that actually renders those things. So like when I am doing a scene with someone and like when I'm in dynamics with someone, like I am not, you know, like legally owned. I am not like actually going to be murdered. But at the same time, we are like creating the conditions where it feels that way. And we're playing with those tropes and those actual feelings. And so to think that that play is just fiction, is just like complete falsity, is to misunderstand like what makes play so potent. Mm -hmm. And I think this like connects a lot to, I've mentioned it before on the show, but Susan Stryker's Dungeon Intimacies, where she talks about the leather scene in San Francisco and how that was like so formative for a lot of like trans identities because the dungeon creates this kind of liminal space Mm. where play is able to occur, where people are able to put on and like confront these aspects of themselves that maybe were repressed and then see what comes up out of those things in these new dynamics. So not just with the other people in the dungeon, but also the parts of themselves that may have been repressed Mm -hmm. and that through that is a site in which self knowledge or at least a new self-interpretation can arise. Yeah, Foucault also talks about the dungeon 
as that sort of space. So you put your clothes and your ID in the locker, you lock it up, and then you just enter this space where bodies are there for you and you are there for like these other bodies. Yeah. Rather than like, I know exactly what I am. <laughs> I'm going to shore up my identity. It's like, no, no, you're going into these spaces to experience the porosity of your identity, like to get sweaty, <laughs> like experience new openings, open yourself up to others, you know? Yeah. I'm curious, Aurora, what did you think in this section on page 60? Mm-hmm. She talks about the concept of passability, which is akin to radical receptivity to enjoy through the ideas of psychoanalyst Emanuel Gunt, mm-hmm. described as surrender, which is distinguished from masochism and submission. And I guess the way in which submission is heavy and weighs someone down, whereas surrender occurs more spontaneously. I guess I wasn't able to entirely parse this because like for me, submission is entirely a surrender. Maybe it's more that like surrender is a surrender to like the possibility of the unknown in the moment. But I don't know. What did you think about this? (laughs) Okay, so I spent a lot of time underlining this and thinking about what it means to create conditions of possible surrender versus of submission. So I think that something that the discussion of submission versus surrender does is it talks about what the bottom has to do for the top versus things that the top might demand of the other. So it troubles notions of like where power lies in those circumstances. I understand that reading, but for me, Mm -hmm. especially like within understanding of leather, that being a submissive is already tied up into that complicating of power and where power comes Mm -hmm. that like that's intrinsic to the power dynamic that in a lot of ways it stems from the submissive. I mean, it might just be the terms that she uses that you have a commitment to the term submission and it means something for you than how she's trying to mobilize it. But like for me, the spontaneity. So like I couldn't help but think in my head times when people are asking me to do things, but like I don't want to be spontaneous because I'm not willing to risk forcing them to submit because they haven't created the necessary conditions for trust. Yeah, I mean, it's beyond the necessary conditions to trust. It's like a degree of apathy. So it's like, maybe you could try to do this and I might like it and I wouldn't necessarily say no, but there's no effort in making taking that risk sexy. (laughs) And there's no effort in creating the conditions where that's something that we're risking together or there's chances that we're taking together. It's like, eh, you could try and then see what happens. It's like, why is suddenly all the risk on me? Then it means that I have to shore up your safety. It means that we cannot do this new thing. Like there is no surrender. You're not really surrendering. You're just putting me in a position where I might be forcing you to submit and you might like that, but there's just no mutuality when it comes to the ways in which the risk is being distributed Mm, okay that's interesting for sure like what it means for someone to ask you to have them submit to you and the degrees of mutuality yeah well like right here where she says that surrender cannot be demanded from the other as in sexual harassment and assault where someone tries to impose their sexual will as it also involves a succumbing to something in oneself. I think that that kind of like self-surrender as well to not knowing how an encounter can progress, like 
kind of giving yourself to that unknowingness, a surrender to the unknowingness in yourself, which is, I think, a scary thing. I mean, I know a lot of people that are like hesitant towards sex or, or like hate sex more than others. <laughs> um, like mm -hmm. <laughs> it's partially because that potentiality for sex to confront themselves with some aspect of themselves that they don't really want to confront and that they would rather like maintain repressed. Mm. That really makes sense to me. I'm glad that you spent a lot of time on that particular uh, <laughs> distinction because that's, that's really interesting. I do think that my personal understanding of submission does sound quite similar to surrender here, mm -hmm. but also I think that I very much understand how lots of people's idea of submission, I think like lots of the time when people hear that I'm a submissive, they problematize it in a similar way and like are opposed to it <laughs> kind of or, mm -hmm. or see it as like inherently bad because it is seen in the way I think it is in this text. I think that there's a relationship here, like a decoupling that she's trying to do between surrender and passivity. Surrender and passivity are decoupled, but she leaves passivity in her understanding of submissiveness. Mm -hmm. The decoupling of surrender and passivity is super important. So I have in mind these interactions of someone just being like well you could you could try that like just like see what happens it's like no like tell me if you want me to do this thing or like be excited about the possibility of surrendering to this thing or be receptive the way that she talks about the receptiveness to more and more the receptiveness to a limited experience like be excited about if it could go either way versus just, just try it out and like maybe something will happen, yeah. you know? And it's like, I think the biggest red flag like a submissive can have is, is someone that is like, oh, I have no limits, you know, like, oh, I'm up for anything mm. or like someone that's like, oh, I don't really know what I want, but like just whatever. And like, mm. you know, like, yeah, we don't always know exactly what we want. And so that's like why we're experimenting. But the complete lack of personal agency, like putting themselves into it is someone who... <laughs> is probably not ready for what they're actually like wanting mm -hmm. going into. And I think that gets a lot of people who identify as submissives. It's actually like a learned skill and you actually are participating. Like you are a full like partner in the exchange of mm. powers. It's not just like you're a limp fish. And um, <laughs> I mean, in unless that's like, you know, the, the role play thing. for the scene. Yeah. <laughs> but like... <laughs> And then the other person has 100% of everything. Like you have to put all of yourself into it in a legitimate way, not just like leave your body. This is so selfish. It's like if you're asking me to potentially do these things that do take energy and effort and make me very vulnerable. Then yeah, like and put you, you up have to rest. Yeah, just like, like, can you just, can you do something? <laughs> can you say something? Can you at least like welcome the experience? Like through the receptiveness, like through the surrendering to me to the experience rather than just like submitting in this like dead fish way in this way that just like oh i'm just gonna submit and then like that opens the, the door for a kind of mutually violating experience that then precludes the possibility for limit consent and then you end up just falling back into these same problems with affirmative consent <laughs> I mean, I've also had encounters like in the other direction where like someone who is the dominant in the situation, but like they 
have no idea what they want and they have and they're just like oh like anything whatever that complete inability to commit to anything Mm -hmm. and like have some sort of agency in it like number one it's not hot for me but it's also falling on its face for everyone involved and I think puts everyone at more risk Mm -hmm. the really remarkable thing about how she's applying limit consent and how she's using surrender here is it actually creates more conditions for accountability so she returns to this vignette with the mother and daughter about like how the possibility of the mother traumatizing the daughter yeah that lumi is not at all concerned about the possibility (laughs) of that happening but like amani as the one who is being told to transgress those limits to continue to you know be the monster and like tickle after like even after lumi says stop it is actually Amani that has the fear and has the resistance to that mm-hmm. and then has to like overcome that resistance both by the feeling of not wanting to hurt Lumi, you know, not wanting to violate Lumi's desire. Like a huge part of, I think, any sort of interaction where like the person has the power, a huge part of it is learning how to take that power. Mm-hmm. And I think this interaction is it's a very interesting one to use because it's this very innocent, obviously like non-sexual interaction between like mother and child, which is at its base, like this most basic earliest power relationship where then the parent has this role of needing to take care of you and like the one whose responsibility it is to have to know what limits you have because you're a child and you don't always know exactly you're going to eat, you know, like maybe you don't want to always be allowed to eat whatever you want because maybe (laughs) then you'll only eat like candy all the time, whatever. Mm -hmm. And like for me, I think the same thing, the same type of dynamic exists like within the dominant situation, like with my daddy, that is a caretaking relationship where Mm -hmm. there is like a huge amount of responsibility taken on through that role and through the negotiation of that role. Mm -hmm. So to quote, this decision to chance it, so this welcoming of risk, this surrendering to risk, is not about carelessly taking risks at the other's expense, although the chance obviously has implications for the other. It's about putting oneself at risk beyond strategy, calculation, or insurance. And so she describes this risk as ordinary. So you underscored the ordinariness of this, of like a child not knowing what they want to eat, not to minimize its dangers, but to de-dramatize it. So just to show that this is at work in our everyday life. She will, in the end, like explicitly say, like, not every situation is going to create the conditions for overwhelm. And like overwhelm's not gonna be everywhere. It's not yeah, like... which is good. We don't <laughs> necessarily <laughs> wanna be doing that. <laughs> but of course not. But yeah. like it is important to know, like, okay, these risks are happening all of the time. Like they're just specifically heightened in our sexual encounters. So there is an everydayness to this. There is a necessary de-dramatizing of it. Here she talks about the normative sadism of Amani and Amani being able to then go past these limits that Lumi has, even though Lumi is the one that is like desiring those limits to be transgressed. Mm-hmm. by being tickled by the tickle monster <laughs> to think about normative sadism here like part of what as we've unpacked in the last several chapters through this idea of the infantile 
sexuality that is like polymorphously perverse so that all of these impulses like sadism are not just these things that are like purely within this sexual or like what we would think of as like a sexual context, Mm -hmm. but that they're like always at play throughout our lives. And so like part of Avgi's point is that these are all at work all the time in every aspect of our lives and that they also shouldn't be pathologized. Mm -hmm. So like her point is to move to the original idea of Freud before the idea of the adult sexuality that kind of like displaces this polymorphous perverse sexuality and saying that like, no, that's like actually how all of us function and like kind of relate to the world around us. And so that's how we relate to everyone, regardless of whether those relationships are quote unquote sexual or not, regardless of whether those relationships are sexual or not. Mm -hmm. She turns to psychoanalysis as a practice in order to have a critique not only of affirmative consent, but then also informed consent, which was super interesting to me because we have a really rich, in-depth literature on consent within medical ethics, but it always hits a wall when people want to standardize it. So you want a super rigorous, like, silver bullet in medical cases given the history of eugenics and the history of malpractice and the ways in which people have their autonomy and their basic rights taken away from them in medical contexts in the history of medicine and continuing today. So like there's a wall that I come across like as someone that teaches medical ethics where students want a clear answer and then what they end up falling into is a legalistic notion. So informed consent becomes very much about signing papers, about checking boxes, about okay so You understand the conditions of your illness. You understand the conditions of your treatment. I've answered all of the appropriate questions. You have to try really hard to create a framework where a patient can just say, I trust you, doctor. You also create all these problems where you want there to be a implicit consent within a clinical context, but then you want a legal safeguard. (laughs) So all that was very interesting to me. Yeah, the affirmative consent model problematically imagines desire to be autonomous, unconstrained, and possible to separate from social inequalities that in fact condition who gets to withhold consent and who does not. Mm-hmm. Premised on and trafficking in appetites and erotic acts that are intelligible and socially palatable, it often buttresses normative sexualities and sexual hierarchies. Mm-hmm. Right. So that means, as we've talked about on past episodes, the thing about drag bans right now that are implicitly also trying to make trans people being illegal in public and make a trans person being near a child inherently a sexual act that is inherently a violating act is Mm -hmm. because these norms of the perverse are always built up and against the norm. So cis-heteronormativity, patriarchy, white supremacy. So it's impossible to think about the base things of things that like we don't have to talk about. Mm -hmm. There always has to be like a base level of assumptions of, oh, these are safe things. And then this is when these are the bad things, right? Like these are the things that like, if you do this thing without talking about it in a medical context, then like that's really bad. And so that's always going to be like a cultural construction of like what things are more intense and actually like need that level of negotiation. And so that's why, you know, any system is always going to be culturally centered around certain norms and they're always going to be the dominant norms. And that means that the 
more marginalized you are, the more alienated you're going to be by that system. Mm -hmm. And so within the psychoanalytic clinic, the mask drops with affirmative consent and with informed consent. I think even people working in other kinds of medical clinics all secretly know this. So I met an ER doctor once and his mantra for understanding consent was, and I quote, choose your lawsuit. Oh, Jesus Christ. This fucking douchebag is like going around and giving talks and he's just like hyping up doctors. He's just like, choose your lawsuit. Like, <laughs> it's clear that he just does not give a shit about his patient's autonomy. He cares about the ways in which it's going to cling to his reputation and his ability to continue his practice. So there's just like, let's just drop the mask. <laughs> like it doesn't do anything to problematize how even so tacit consent, the sort of medical consent that is closer to limit consent. So tacit consent is the notion that within a particular context, because you're in it, you are silently agreeing to the conditions of that context. So when I go to the doctor and the doctor says like sit on the table and I sit on the table, then there's like sort of a an agreement that they're going to begin the examination. So like when the doctor like preps the needle for my vaccine and they're like stick out your arm, my sticking out the arm is like me tacitly giving consent to the vaccination. Limit consent, I think it's closer to that, but at the end of the day, it's still like, oh, choose your lawsuit. We're still stuck in that paradigm that also completely ignores the ways in which our normative notions of power and acceptable behavior and like all of that informs how I can and cannot say no to something or informs my ability to be seen as autonomous. None of that is really sufficiently critiqued and interrogated in notions of tacit consent, even though they do get us to think a little bit closer to limit consent. Yeah. And she does a really remarkable job talking about the psychoanalytic clinic as a foil. So do we want to talk a little bit about that clinic? Yeah, just before that, to go back to Amani and Lumi, mm -hmm. this line really felt like a good way to think about it. Amani's consent paradoxically requires a tentative surrender to Lumi, to Lumi's desire, and to the unknowability of what is coming next. And mm -hmm. so we need a different concept for this type of consent. One that, unlike affirmative consent, is predicated not on setting and observing limits, but on Lumi initiating and Amani responding to an invitation to transgress them. So then to go a little bit farther down, to the extent that Amani is also letting herself be taken over by an internal force that she cannot fully control, limit consent involves a surrender to herself as well, which makes consent an internal affair. Mm -hmm. So therefore, like surrender and limit experience is an experience that we risk. And in that sense, it is also an experience that can wound us. But unlike affirmative consent in which being wounded has to do with an explicit disregard of the other stated limits, if injury occurs in limit consent, it is inadvertent. It results from infantile sexual urges that have gone too far, gone beyond play, with neither party knowing it until after the fact. Mm. And I think that that's the thing that's like very difficult about thinking this. And I think like when we talk about affirmative consent is like consent for babies, <laughs> Basically, everyone that I know that is like a practicing leather deck, like already, like basically what we practice is limit consent mm -hmm. of some form. But I also think that like I would not want 
a random dude who like isn't able to communicate and like doesn't know their desire well to really like fully get their hands on this really. And I think that's the thing that troubles me a little bit is that I think it is the best framework by far that I have found to like actually understand how consent functions and to fully understand sexuality. Mm. But I also understand that like the way that sexuality is understood in the first place is so pathetic kind of (laughs) in overall society and like the way that communication functions, the way that like desire functions. And so I don't trust a lot of types of people with the concept of limit Mm -hmm. consent. Like in the same way that I think relationship anarchy or like so many other of like these terms that initially start out as these queer ideas that do have really interesting implication, then you inevitably get people that are just manipulating those terms for their own need. And I think that's going to happen with any sort of terms, Mm -hmm. I guess. And like Augie is very clear that limit consent is recognizing that harm is something that does occur, that this is not something that is getting us past the question of violation and and like assault and yeah. everything else. But it worries me in the way that how someone that does have less than good intentions could like manipulate the language of it. Yeah to get away with even more fucked up stuff than they already do with affirmative consent. Yeah. But, you know, maybe that's just a problem in general. Maybe it's ridiculous to think about. Maybe that's not really how we should be addressing things. Because I think immediately once you make a any sort of language framework, that language can be manipulated and yeah. used in manipulative bad ways. Oh, it's scary to think about this falling into the wrong hands. But in this regard, I think it, all of her examples are so intentional. So I'm going to maybe sound like a broken record. The intentionality of starting this chapter with a vignette, and it's not a clinical vignette. It's a vignette between a mother and child. And I know that we're an Abolish the Family podcast, but there's something about that relationship that within it, the conditions necessary for limit consent are sort of already set. So... Imani has a commitment to Lumi and to Lumi's well-being and flourishing. And Lumi trusts Imani, like, because it's her mother. And she trusts that she's going to foster surprise and novelty. And I think that that's why she begins with this example before she invites the clinical example. So I think that that was really necessary to build into it. It's interesting, right? Because I think, you know, obviously a lot of queer people's actual experience of parental relations are Mm -hmm. like not that positive at all. Yeah. (laughs) Especially like with both their parents. But like at the same time, I think that that kind of like framework is a lot of the way that these kind of like reparenting examples Mm -hmm. of the way that a lot of like queer relationships, I think like structure themselves, Mm -hmm. both sexual relationships and non-sexual relationships, like between adults Mm -hmm. in these ways that do have these elements of power and, and kind of like reparenting, Mm -hmm. right? Because there are so many people (laughs) with trauma who do not have these relationships of that novelty or who you know, because of some aspect of queer trans childhood, you know, have some aspect of that, that they are recreating like those spaces of safety where they can like be themselves and like be like understood and accepted within like this different space and framework. Mm -hmm. 
building from that which is just super necessary there's this moment where she shifts from that play that's so the play of mother and child doing tickle monster <laughs> to rape play it just like happens immediately did that catch your eye and i i imagine like I if see that yeah <laughs> i imagine like if she wasn't also like very worried about the potential uptake of limit consent that she would have begun with something like that she would have just begun with the example of rape play rather than the example of the already necessary committed relationship especially because i think that she is again like all of us very critical of the family structure like her work on psychoanalysis like is very much undoing the mommy daddy and me like the oedipal triad it's, it's a dyad very interestingly when she talks about relationships um but then also critical of the notion of like sex only has to happen in this committed safe space so what does it mean to foster precarity and then also novelty and surprise so i think that's why that sort of sleight of hand happens or that's why she's shifting from the kinds of examples that she does i think the thing about honestly this entire text is that <laughs> it's a very um twitter unfriendly text <laughs> It's a text that is absolutely ripe for misreading. Mm -hmm. And like, I think the ways that a lot of people think about a lot of these things, like there's a lot of knee-jerk reactions to certain parts of this text that people could have that could then be taken into a take that completely misunderstands the whole thing that it's doing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that also makes it quite a brave text it feels very much as kind of like the sequel to hatred of sex <laughs> <laughs> as really like going against a lot of these very sacred accepted truths about how we function mm -hmm. so before we go in into the relationship between isabella and raven can we talk a little bit about freud and laplanche Aki talks about how that like within the psychoanalytic clinic that the patient cannot fully appreciate what it is that they are consenting to when seeing mm -hmm. an analyst. So that like when they're going in to get psychoanalyzed, that it is implicit and assumed that there will be things that maybe they have as hard limits at the beginning. Maybe they like don't want to talk about their trauma or like they have certain limits about that, that lots of those limits will likely be eroded like as the process of psychoanalysis continues. And so, like, they don't know what the treatment will bring, but we do at least know that we do not know. Mm -hmm. And so the actual hope going into the practice is the hope that time will erode the stated limits. And that, like, as we talked about, you know, in past relationships of the kind of, like, precarity between the analyst and the patient. You have the most epic Freudian slip we said in past relationships. <laughs> Instead oh, in past episodes. Oh, in past episodes. <laughs> oh, Jesus Christ. Okay. <laughs> in past relationships, we've also talked about this. Um, yeah. In past I... episodes, we have also talked. <laughs> um, the analyst is also vulnerable, though, of course, the responsibility is asymmetrical. So mm -hmm. I think this is a great way of seeing it. Whereas affirmative consent aims at eliminating risk and liability, limit consent is open to both. Mm -hmm. And so like, why would we step away from affirmative consent and into its limit counterpart? Partially it's because 
through this, we have to recognize that affirmative consent is literally about choosing your lawsuit. (laughs) Yeah. Choosing your lawsuit, like distancing yourself from like any sort of possible accountability Mm -hmm. and and, like having to like actually deal with the fact that we are people who like can cause harm. Yeah. But that also it completely distances ourselves from this concept of overwhelm. So Mm -hmm. the request to have one's limits overrun and the willingness to consider that request are both driven by infantile sexuality's economic tendency to seek escalating excitations toward more stimulation. The move into that more and more of experience can produce states of overwhelm that, as discussed, may catalyze significant psychic transformations. Mm -hmm. Like I know when I started really exploring BDSM, like I had a lot of both like soft and hard limits that are now just things I'm into. And so the the concept of soft and hard limits to uh, put into context, soft limits are things that it's okay to push in some ways, but that, you know, they're things that may trigger you in some way or you want to like stay away from but like you're willing to explore it. And then hard limits are things that you would never ever like want to explore in a million years. Like blood used to be a hard limit for me. Um, (laughs) And now blood is just something that I'm into. Like Mm -hmm. I really like when people make my blood be on the outside of me in various ways. (laughs) And I think that being open to the way in which yourself is revealed through those experiences of overwhelm And like knowing that those things shift is, I think, one of the most rewarding parts of a power dynamic. Yeah. And what it means to build that trust and what it means to be someone who is like attentive enough to another to be pushing those limits, like for them to surrender and like for you to be reading them and to be entering in that experience with them so nuanced and you get rid of that when with affirmative consent one of the things about that level of surrender is that you are playing with risk Mm. and we've talked about these texts that like really take that to its conclusion like the story of oh and leash like what does it mean to like really surrender on that level like to the point that you lose yourself and it actually like curdles into horror Mm -hmm. and i think that's the thing like no matter how much trust we may have with someone there's always the possibility of that violation and the more trust there is and the more that like power dynamic exists the more of a violation it is Mm -hmm. right and i have had that happen and like i i talked to a lot of dominance after my breakup about the precarity of breakups that are playing with power and like Mm. consent in these like more nuanced ways And that it involves a level of introspection and like self-accountability that like some people just aren't willing to engage with in a way that then ends up just like being super fucked up. Yeah. Well, it's also horrifying to be like, oh, my God, like I have this amount of power over someone like, oh, my God, I'm changing them. (laughs) Like that sounds really extreme, but that's sort of the case when you're pushing someone's limits like you are changing them the other side of the coin the other side of the horror coin and in the way that you know often power dynamics take from the power dynamics in the world you know like the archetypes that we already know and live out and you know like see in media etc and that those violations that we can like get so much meaning out of those relationships But then also that is like opening us up to a level of violation and risk that maybe 
we would not have had if we had like kept ourselves to a distance or kept ourselves within the timid pool of like non-overwhelm, you know, mm -hmm. of affirmative consent where everything is like known and, you know, like all of our T's are crossed and we're not like putting ourselves like our whole self on the line like that. Mm -hmm. But also I wouldn't want to live that way. So, yeah. you know, that's the problem. She also talks about the ways in which tops are are implicated. So she undoes this myth that it's actually the bottom that has all the control. So there's the superficial idea of like, oh, that scene is actually happening. Top has all the power and the bottom has no power. And then like people have this awakening where they're like, oh, wait, it's the bottom that has all the power. <laughs> Yeah. And then she's like, nope, actually, <laughs> let's go deeper. Yeah. It's so much more complicated. It's funny that this is another, like, probably entirely linguistic thing mm. where, like, a lot of, like, older texts use bottom and top in uh -huh. this way. But, like, I don't see, like, bottom or top as, like, inherently, like, submissive or dominant in those mm -hmm. ways. You know, like, I am, like, largely a bottom, but I also service top from a submissive perspective. Do you want to take some time to define those terms just so that we're all on the same page? <laughs> yeah, well, so... <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, so, like, I am largely, like, acted upon, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, sometimes even to the point of, like, pillow princessing where, like, I am entirely, like the receiver and I am being used. And that doesn't mean that I'm like passive or that I'm like not moving or that I'm not participating, mm -hmm. but that I am like very much the bottom in those situations. But I am also sometimes all service top, you know, I am into fisting, I will wear a strap, you know, etc. Mm -hmm. And be the top in those scenarios. So like fist my partner or use the strap with my partner. But I will never do that like from a dominant position where like I am calling the shots mm. like ever. And like that is my line <laughs> that like I'm willing to service top when that is something that my partner wants. But I am never willing to be dominant. And like the simplistic way to define top and bottom, which is like, okay, one person is literally on the top and one person is literally on the bottom. Yeah. Well, and, okay. it, and, and I mean, it's like more nuanced than that. Yeah. You know, it's more like actor, non-actor, but like, yeah. but yeah, that is in a very simplistic way we can think about it in that way. But we don't want to. <laughs> but we don't, we don't want to. Yeah. But that's also not necessarily how power is working. And that's not necessarily how like the action and like who's like choosing the action Mm -hmm. if that makes sense yeah this is actually where the metaphor of the clinic is super helpful because it is operational in a specific time and place so it's like highly situational it is also there's a degree of like expediency that is somewhat non-linear and that also involves a particular set of actors mm -hmm. before we circle back to Freud and Laplanche just bringing up the ways in which she is utilizing that clinical setting or utilizing the notion of a clinic. So what did we want to say about Freud and Laplanche? For Freud, as we talked about in past chapters, when he says that the sexual drive is by nature polymorphous and perverse, mm -hmm. he means perverse as enlarge the sexual beyond the limits of the difference between the sexes and beyond sexual reproduction, right? So perverse is not just genitals or are things beyond just like penis in vagina for baby, you know, mm -hmm. like that is perverted, right? Like, <laughs> and, and that's because it's within that like genital sexual reproduction sex, like quote unquote, adult sexuality, which then at, at parts of his practice, he wanted to put sexuality and say that was like the more mature sexuality. 
And so this is going back to the Freud that does not do that, um, which also that Laplanche kind of championed later. So perversity thus was not a deviation from normality, but sexuality's very foundation. So there is no predetermined right object of sexuality, and it has transferable potential and can therefore proliferate in unexpected sites. So some of the examples given, an armpit, the big toe, the navel can be as likely sites as the genitals. Mm -hmm. And that also means that all different component instincts are just as natural as any other. So masochism, sadism, exhibitionism, and voyeurism are endemic to the sexual rather than being the defensively sexualized debris of trauma or overstimulation. So instead of the move that's been made in like most of psychology, where all of those things have to be explained away by like basically something that went wrong, like, mm-hmm. oh, you were abused as a child or like you had like some fucked up. It's always a weird sex thing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Any sort of weird sex thing has to like come back to a problem. Like, no, those are all how sexuality functions and we don't have to pathologize any of them. Like, and we should not pathologize any of them. The characters that are then gained in puberty, you know, where the proper straight subject wants to have penis in vagina sex for having of babies Mm -hmm. is then not like the correct sexuality. And so within that is also kind of a rejection of things like attachment theory has Mm -hmm. done trying to put sexuality into these like kind of like safe cases. So the assimilation of sexuality under the tranquil and unifying aegis of the ego paved the way to the sexual's normalization. Having been divorced from the force and disruptive properties of the sexual drive, Eros now became exclusively nested within object relations, and from there, further usurped by attachment theory. This domestication (laughs) may also have contributed to the sexual's eventual capture by sexual identity. This again, like, goes back the hatred of sex idea that instead of dealing with like the full complexity of the sexual and the way in which sexuality can actually be a risk to the ego, instead we found these like safe places to put it and create it into these things like identity that actually shore up the ego. So like, I am a gay man. I am a you know whatever. I am a bisexual woman, and my queerness is valid. Exactly. Yeah, these things to shore up the identity, you know, to be valid, validity Mm -hmm. (laughs) is very much from this. And that therefore, like the appropriate sexual, the sexuality that is mature and healthy is a sexuality that bonds, connects, makes you feel loved, feeling as a full object and so on. So then that makes any sort of perverse sexuality as something that needs to be pathologized inherently. Mm -hmm. And so what Augie is doing here is reversing that and saying that, no, this tame sexuality that wants to make sexuality this binding force that actually just shores up the ego is actually like basically just the sexuality removed from everything that actually makes it potent mm-hmm. and like a interesting force <laughs> yeah because it stops being a force if there's an end goal too if it's like penis and vagina make baby or oh you're perverse in these ways it means that there's this thing and i'm gonna heal you then it's not a force it's not pushing you anywhere it, or not a force insofar as it's not creating any shattering moment it's just pushing you from 
point A to point B has like this necessary talos. It's so funny too that sexuality was like put into the demonic sexual (laughs) (laughs) um like as a way to make sense of it like proposing eros which is you know a much more tamed sexuality function mm-hmm. which then is up and against thanatos which is the death drive as a way to make sense of the way that they're trying to pathologize all types of perverse sexualities laplanche referred to the fragmenting dimension of the sexual that was thus excised from the sexual as a demonic aspect since the demonic aspect of the sexual could no longer be ontologically housed in the domain of eros Freud was forced to relocate it elsewhere, hence the new conceptual space called the death drive. (laughs) And so then you have to see the death drive, a.k.a. Thanatos Mm -hmm. and Eros as these two parts of the self that are actually like always at war with one another. Mm -hmm. And then therefore you have to pathologize the fuck out of perversity because that's the only way that you can like make sense of it rather than to see it as actually no, like completely fine and great. Mm -hmm. I think it's also helpful to think about use of demon as it connects to the Greek daemon. Yeah. The unseeable, unknowable, like little creature that says everything about you that others can see and understand. Like that is always opaque from you, but then you get some sort of grasp on with your encounters with others. So they simultaneously are taking up this notion of this opaque daemon, but then creating a duality like a very simplistic binary that ends up being super hegelian between the good nurturing caring eros that desires to like reproduce and foster life and then the destructive desire for death and it's like this dualism that kind of uncomplicates it so they were trying to like create a nuanced account but in creating this nuanced account they uncomplicate our notion and then they also get rid of opacity It's interesting that they like, oh, we're going to make it demonic. We're going to create this simplistic dualism so we can render it into normative terms. Mm -hmm. Do you want to talk about the enigmatic? I'm trying to find a good quote. Like for me, I understood it as the remainder. Mm -hmm. So that which we can't translate. So we want to tame sexuality rather than leave it as opaque. So we create this simplistic dualism and try to get rid of or try to translate the enigmatic. And we try to tell ourselves that we're going to get it right and we're going to come up with a final account of it. And thus, like, we preclude the possibility for understanding anything is enigmatic. Or we preclude the possibility for lingering in excessive spaces. We preclude a possibility for understanding ourselves as being in encounters where there is a remaining unknowable. We're going to find the rational account for why we are how we are and Mm -hmm. reveal all of those inner contents, you know? Yeah. That fantasy. The really base notion of psychoanalysis of I'm going to lie on the couch and I'm going to keep talking until I have a breakthrough moment which the breakthrough moment just gets shattering wrong because it pretends like I'm going to have the breakthrough and I'm going to be done. Mm -hmm. And then it's over versus understanding the richness of those encounters, understanding that, no, it isn't just me talking about myself. I'm in a relationship with others, like in this case, the analysis. And the breakthrough isn't the final word. The breakthrough is the shattering that makes something else possible. Mm Mm-hmm. 
I really like how Avi insists on repurposing overwhelm as a noun rather than an adjective. Mm-hmm. So I am purposely devising this neologism so that as a term, overwhelm may maintain its ties with the quality of feeling flooded that the phrase being overwhelmed or the expression that something is overwhelming usually conveys while also defamiliarizing it from the habit of thinking that such flooding is necessarily problematic or traumatizing. She also does a, such a wonderful job of carefully taking back pervert and perverse. And I loved that. And I thought of you. Yeah. <laughs> and I thought of so many other perverts that I know. Yeah. Um, well, I was like, when I was saying that, I was like, well, I know where that comes from. <laughs> She's like, I can't talk about this in terms of just BDSM because that has become very vanilla. It is just this, oh, BDSM as healing versus when we look at actual practices there's a reclaiming of pervert and that does something risky it does something that's hyper political in a way that these other terms have like stopped being political stopped moving and growing as terms they've just become so stagnant it's also interesting here how she invokes bataille to talk about how overwhelm untethers enigma so mm -hmm. in the experience of overwhelm language breaks apart and experience is no longer communicable this is as unmediated as the drive can ever be. Mm -hmm. The unstitching of translations, disorganized and disorganizing, though it may be, opens up to a particular kind of luxuriating experience, i.e. sovereign experience, as Bataille would put it, and possibly to fashioning of new translations. Mm -hmm. So through this, the contents of the unconscious, which we cannot access, can like actually arise and can cause these things that like we truly cannot change about ourselves because they are not things that we can rationally like affect we cannot convince ourselves out of them but through these experiences of overwhelm we can potentially confront them and retranslate them into new content mm -hmm. and also some of the things that have already been translated into our ego we <laughs> untranslate <laughs> How does she put it? We can unravel some of those things potentially back into the contents of the unconscious. Mm -hmm. So it's not about creating a more correct translation, but it is the ability to change. The real reason no one changes is because people aren't open to like states of overwhelm that push the boundaries of their ego, <laughs> I think mm -hmm. is a good way to think about it. We just don't like to be challenged. Mm -hmm. We want our experiences to make us feel secure rather than to make us feel unraveled. It's human, but it's also what a way to live your life by not living it. Yeah, it's a bummer. There's so many different ways that paths to overwhelm can be thought of. And lots of them are often thought of as reckless, obsessive, or self-destructive. Extreme sports, skydiving, psychedelic drugs like ayahuasca, high-risk, high-voltage sexual practices, purposely pursued mystical experience, silent retreats, <laughs> ascetic religious practices, example, extreme fasting, and other practices. Theater and some performance art can also have such impacts. There are these experiences that are, like, as we talked about in the last episode, that, like, works of art that like really challenge or like discomfort you in those ways like can accomplish similar states of overwhelm and you know like maybe don't make you feel good but 
can certainly challenge you in these ways that like bring up things that you didn't know were there. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think, the power of actual art. I think a lot of people, when we think of art now, we think of like entertainment. Mm -hmm. And like entertainment is important by all means. I love me some entertainment, but it's also something that like just assuages our ego and makes us like feel good and like cozy like our comfort shows or whatever and doesn't really like do anything Mm -hmm. that's not really to me what is important about art's potential which is to like actually have a meaningful impact on how someone views the world. Mm-hmm. It's wild to me how there's a return to this notion that art needs to be beautiful and that art yeah. needs to have some kind of moral lesson. Yeah, Jesus Christ. We're in fascist times, Aurora. <laughs> but I thought like even as I understand it, and I'm a terrible Kantian, like <laughs> even like Kant like doesn't think that art is necessarily about beauty. <laughs> Oh, I I don't know. I haven't read I haven't read actual like original Kant since like history of philosophy and like at least 10 years ago. So even like the big kind of boring names, they don't even have takes that are that lukewarm. (laughs) Yeah. Well, yeah, that's because they're fascist. Uh, No, but like (laughs) fascism. (laughs) (laughs) Fucking philosophers, I I swear. I know. <laughs> I'm the only one you'll tolerate, though. Oh, yeah. I like a lot of philosophers. I just think a lot of them are also evil. Mm-hmm. Not the ones I like, but, you know. Most philosophers. But some of them are evil. In stupid ways, not evil in cool, hot ways. There's probably some philosophers I like that are evil in cool, hot ways. But I can't think of any right now. I've told you about... Kant's kink, yeah. Like him tying down his hands because he didn't want to touch himself at night. His manservant had to tie him up every night and then untie him every morning. Hot. I mean, I guess I never thought about like mm-hmm. who tied him down. Like, of course, someone had to tie him down. <laughs> like, he doesn't have hands. Like, I assumed, I guess it was his like wife. No, he was never married. Oh, no, I thought he had a mm-hmm. Okay, you would know. <laughs> I think Hegel like had a wife and then also like had a relationship with his landlady and like a child with her and stuff like that. Like, non monog. What a woke king. <laughs> <laughs> the clean non monogamous. <laughs> Um, oh my god. <laughs> Men in philosophy haven't changed. <laughs> Same as it ever was. Okay, so paths to overwhelm. I think you did a great job talking about that. So that means that we get to talk about the psychoanalytic vignette now about Isabella. Mm-hmm. Let me just read this last little bit because it's good. Perverse and transgressive sexualities, however, have a privileged relationship to overwhelm because perverse sexualities are especially likely to be arrogated by the sexual drive. This is because they share some of the drive's constitutive key features. They are embodied, non-genital organizations that involve the body's excitability. They are often ordered around component instincts, tearing in sadism, masochism, voyeurism, and so on. They transgress norms. They recruit affects like humiliation, shame, and terror. And, as we saw earlier, they operate on the logics of part objects. While it is true that all of us are likely to want to convene to these, like, safer, more normative sexualities that make us feel safe and contained, it is more likely 
the more marginalized you are and the more that your own sense of self already goes against this normative society, that you may be more attracted to those extreme states and that type of experience. Mm -hmm. Because already your very existence is at some sort of tension with those dominant norms. Mm -hmm. You already find yourself at that limit. So surrendering to limit consent just makes sense. Like once you become a transsexual, you know, like so much of the world hates you and thinks you're an evil pervert anyway, like you might as well become like a weird pervert because like you're already (laughs) there. Everyone thinks you're doing it, even if you're like the biggest square in the world. So having talked about limit consent and the draw to overwhelm within the framework of Lumi and Imani, Avgi introduces the clinical vignette. So in this case, it's a patient named Isabella who is in her mid-30s and who she sees four times weekly, which is kind of a lot as I understand it. And so Isabella has a thriving professional life, but she's like kind of closed off. She's the daughter of immigrants, so she's first generation, and she feels a lot of weight given her relationship with her own privilege and knowing everything that her parents had to work for. So she's working within that. But when she talks about her life and when she talks about her professional career, Avi describes it as sort of being lackluster. Like it's like just all these tones and shades of gray of like monotony, except when she talks about her relationship with her lover, Raven. So Raven is a white trans woman who in Avgi's words, stood out pulsating with life. It is interesting that there's a degree of like monotony and like saturated with with all these grays. But then she also describes herself as a pervert in this positive sense. So to quote, I continue to use perversity in my thinking in clinical work with patients who identify this way because it captures an edge and a phenomenological dimension that more neutral descriptors like non-normative sexuality, atypical sexual practices, BDSM and kink do not. Hell yeah. Further, I'm reluctant about phrases like erotic games, not only because I find them conceptually limp, but also because they ground their legitimacy in the relational arrangements within which transgressive sex occurs, oftentimes privileging normative relational forms. So heterosexual, state sanctioned, long term, monogamous, all those fun things. Perversion really highlights the transgressive aspects of relations that kink bdsm fail to grasp so in their time working together she shares stories of her sexual encounters with raven in particular this really beautiful scene where she topped raven so she led raven into this dimly lit room removed her clothing and after placing restraints on her wrists she blindfolded her and then proceeded to engage in needle play. So she placed needles starting at her collarbone and all the way down her body to her thigh. Then she removed her own clothing and standing naked, she pierced her own skin and then threaded the needles so that they corresponded, creating this elaborate ritual where they were intricately bound together. Then ordering Raven to hold her gaze, she took a gentle step back, making the strings become taut and bringing about this painful sensation. Let's talk a bit about the symbolism of this scene and sort of everything that it evokes. 
in that situation that not just Raven, but Isabella in the scene, awash in the dysregulating experiential oversaturation, felt like she was becoming undone, that she was being ripped apart, broken open by experience. And so partially the scene was a offering from Isabella to Raven because Raven's body had been subjected to physical violence as a child and that that traumatic childhood strained their relationship and continued to torment Raven and then also the fraught relationship Raven has her own body because of her transness and so in this way Isabella shared with me the threading of her body to her lovers was meant as an inner embodied recognition of what Raven had suffered and of the ways in which Raven's body remained a contested site a statement of Isabella's commitment to remaining tied to Raven despite their struggles, Isabella's engagement was not with a circumscribed body part, but with Raven's skin surface. That is, it was diffuse in the way that infantile sexuality is. Since trauma had entered Raven through her body, Isabella told me, her offering to Raven required a somatic communication unmediated through language. Mm-hmm. And so... It felt visceral, incommunicable, and embodied. Isabella wasn't really going into this thinking about what it meant for herself, but that because these elements were things that happened within the body and that happened within memory and are on some level ineffable (laughs) through this offering, this like extremely beautiful offering, there was an ability to express that I think in like probably the most profound way that you can up and against the opaqueness too so we can't share those sorts of experiences but when you're bound like that symmetrically and then pulling on those threads and like feeling like the subtle pain the subtle sensations under your skin and knowing that your lover is feeling those sensations trying to bind yourself to your lover and as connected as you can be (laughs) It's hard to imagine a ritual or a scene that makes you more connected to someone than something like Mm -hmm. this. Do you want to talk about the smell and taste? Okay. So she describes the scene in a session, in particular describing it as having this burning bitterness. And I'm going to quote this because there's a redundancy here that I think is meaningful. A smell and taste, a burning bitterness, like a burning. So the feeling of a taste that burns, but then like a heat. During their next session... Avgi found herself craving Greek coffee, and as she prepared the cup of coffee, which in itself is ritualistic, Isabella comes in and she sees and smells the coffee and just bursts into tears. And rather than trying to translate this interaction for her own benefit, so like rather than trying to make this encounter about herself... She takes a couple of steps back and like allows for there to be this mutual overwhelm. She recognizes the power dynamic that they're in. She recognizes that she just had this breakthrough the session before. And she had never seen this distress before, that this was entirely unlike mm-hmm. Isabella normally. Mm-hmm. And so rather than to interpret and sympathize and make meaning on the patient's behalf, she creates the conditions for this like mutual overwhelm. Yeah, the way she talks about it is so beautiful but this was not a moment for understanding why i can only formulate this retrospectively trying to understand would have been to take us both out of the moment to try to treat it as if representations were already formed when isabella's experience was emergent not yet inserted in time so to like think about experiences of overwhelm i think that that's one of the biggest challenges for ethical sadism that 
to allow mm. someone to experience the overwhelm and to not want to negate it, to want to like make someone okay and bring them back to equilibrium is a very difficult thing to do, you know, to like have someone like crying and then like continue or to just like let someone mm. very much goes against how lots of what I think are instinctual impulses, but also like our, our cultural impulses around what we're supposed to do in moments like that. Mm-hmm. And so to quote again, we may be reminded here of Imani's hesitation to follow Lumi's command, which speaks to how predominant the concern with safety can become. Safety in that sense becomes dangerous, a danger, the cost of which is incalculable. One can measure what went wrong, but one cannot measure what never became, what one never got to experience. The desire to translate and to synthesize precludes the possibility for emergent experiences for new becomings. Mm-hmm. And it's with this knowledge that when the time to interrogate, not the what, but the how of Isabella's emotive response to the coffee, that she was actually able to foster another breakthrough. So she was able to talk about how Isabella's parents, who like worked really hard to build a life for themselves and for her, Isabella's mother in particular took a second job to pay for piano lessons and during those lessons what would happen like before they began was that the teacher would give her a cup of coffee and rather than seeing that as a gift or rather I want to rephrase that because that sounds like she's being ungrateful which she isn't um so she goes to these lessons that she knows her parents are working so hard for and the part of the ritual is that the teacher makes her a cup of coffee and before they can begin she has to drink the coffee and it just becomes a symbol that and I quote isn't an offering but a demand like she cannot start this lesson this lesson that means so much to her parents that is supposed to be like creating this new possibility for her without first submitting to the instructor and submitting to the instructor's ritual of like drink this scalding hot coffee and do it as fast as possible so that you'll have as much time as possible in the piano Mm -hmm. and that is Um. a different kind of bitterness a different kind of burning (laughs) and so that breakthrough was really important do you want to go into both like Avgi's relationship with the coffee and then how that image then goes into Isabella's idea it's so interesting but I think I'm struggling to describe it So to quote in Returning to the Coffee, the signifier of Greek coffee, something that she had brought into the analytic exchange, so was she, I mean, Avgi, is a production of her own process that arose in the context of what Isabella's material evoked for me. It reflects, that is, my own serendipitous yet meaningful response to the patient's material, which in turn provided a medium through which the proto-form of the enigmatic in Isabella's experience, so the burning bitter, hot sensation became elaborated, activating her own memory of the coffee offering and the piano lessons. The Greek coffee that I made, that is, derived its meaning from its retroactive effect on my patient's memory. So she's seeing herself as in a process that isn't like a hierarchical exchange of the analyst coming in with the tools and translating. Like she recognizes that there's a serendipitous, there's a chance aspect of it. There is a power dynamic and it is like a dialogue. It's a dialogue and not a dialectic. It is rooted in a mutual experience that they're creating together within this clinical encounter. Mm -hmm. And so she's recognizing her own position in this relationship 
and the ways in which she's bringing in her own relationship to that sign, the sign of the Greek coffee, which she describes as being nostalgic for her, while being very, very careful to not make it about her and her own understanding of the reaction of breaking into tears and then also of not just projecting her own relationship with coffee and her own nostalgia like the sense of the feeling well for her invokes this connection to greece for isabella evokes this very fraught relationship with her past like it's like different registers of nostalgia when it was also fraught for avgi as well yeah not to suggest yeah that as you mentioned it wasn't fraught for avgi yeah with like the the fascism yeah (laughs) fascism within greece and the golden dawn Mm -hmm. murdering immigrants jesus the world is so bad. That's just what I always get back to. The world is so bad. Yeah, I don't mean to trivialize nostalgia and to suggest that Avki had a flat notion of it. You're totally right. It was also bitter for her, too. I mean, it connects to that ritual, like, of the threading together, the binding of, okay, so we're kind of experiencing these similar sensations. So this pain, the tautness, like, when you're pulling the strings taut. But there's also that excess. There's also that thing that remains enigmatic. And that is the enigmatic that the state of overwhelm brings us close to. But then in bringing us close to it, it also highlights the ways in which we can never quite grasp it. Absolutely. And that like as much as Isabella or Avki goes into trying to elaborate on what the Greek coffee means, there is always an excess to the symbol within both of them that cannot be reduced to anything in specific, which is why the sign is what it is instead of a set of rational signifiers. Throughout this whole process, she's able to retranslate some of these ways that freed up the leftover enigma of her unconscious and giving it room to be retranslated. So Isabella's fresh retranslations made more degrees of psychic freedom possible for her, as those new translations were less tightly coiled around the other's desires, coming more into her own possession. So her other's desires being like her parents' desires. So like her projection about what her parents like want from her or what like she owes as being a daughter of immigrants, especially as being a queer woman who, you know, can never give that exact vision of the future, you know, that maybe her parents expected. So here, by degrees of freedom, it's not to say that Isabella, through that translation, escapes sociality or history. And she also hasn't, like, accessed, like, her true self or, like, true reality. We should always be suspicious of people that talk about reality in any way that sort of approaches objectivity. Mm -hmm. But instead, that it opened up new possibilities. So what becomes available to the patient through this process is always and only a new translation It's not a final destination as far as translation is concerned, but how well a translation works at a particular point in a patient's life. Isabella did not discover the mother's ambivalence, racial trauma, or class injury, though they may well be there. What Isabella was able to do was arguably more urgent. It helped her craft a personal, subjective relationship to her class, to her race, and to her queerness, with them becoming more hers, less answerable to the meanings and anxieties they generated in her family or in the ethnic and racial group she identified herself with, bringing Mm -hmm. them more into her own possession. When I think about a lot of queer people, (laughs) a lot of people, you know, like live lives where they're never able to move past these visions of what society has put on them. So even if they're able to make 
some steps, like maybe they're able to live as queer, maybe they're able to live as trans, whatever, there is still always this continual going back onto these paths of what you like should be doing that aren't actually about you or what you want. And so through this process, it's an ability to like confront those things about yourself. You know, like I talk about my mom a lot, (laughs) like like that my mom called herself a recovering Catholic. You're always a little bit Catholic. And even me, as someone that did not grow up Catholic, just grew up raised by a recovering Catholic. I have a bunch of Catholic tendencies just through that translation. (laughs) Confronting those is hard. Like those are not things that can be simply looked at in a rational way and be like, oh, I don't believe this anymore. Those are things that are deep within us that sometimes can be like confronted in ways that aren't this like purely rational, like this is true, this is not true sort of relation, which is how I think a lot of people talk about what the good life is. And I, I, I just I just think that's not really how we often operate in the world. Absolutely. People think of sadism as something that you are causing pain, that you're harming someone, and people generally think of that as a purely negative thing. But if we think about experiences of overwhelm that push us past limits of what we find comfortable and like limits of experience, then it requires sadists of some sort to get us to that point. Like, I think if we go back to the whole list of different states of overwhelm, I think a lot of really crazy sports trainers, like coaches, can be seen as ethical sadists. I mean, I don't know how many of them are ethical. (laughs) (laughs) Or like trip sitters, like ayahuasca trip sitters, you know. Oh, God. (laughs) I don't know if that's especially ethical either. (laughs) It depends if they're like some like white dude Mm. profiting off of you know yeah if they're colonial or not yeah the desire to have someone that can push you past your limits like i do not want to date someone who is not able to push me past my limits and like many many times now i've been on dates with so-called dominants who are absolutely uncomfortable with doing anything that puts me into a state of overwhelm like immediately if i'm crying like it's like over like no ability to continue Mm -hmm. And like, that's not hot for me. (laughs) The idea that the person who is initiating, which is like, you know, the submissive or who is actually asking, like, I want these limits, like X limits to be ethically transgressed and to be into a place where we can reach those spaces potentially together is a real work of care. It's care work. And it requires an immense amount of attunement and communication for me to get to a place of trust with someone where they know me so well, they can read my body. We've negotiated things down to a T. They know what I like. They know what I don't like. They know how to like press my buttons in the way that I want to be pressed. Mm -hmm. That for me is ethical sadism (laughs) Mm -hmm. as opposed to something where the sadist is just enacting their own selfish desire without putting themselves up in any way like the entire arrangement is determined on some level by the submissive or the masochist whatever i mean also sadist and masochist are not like there can be a masochistic uh, dominance and etc but you know that Mm -hmm. that's unnecessary i was wondering if we were wanting to split hairs when it came to linguistics that's (laughs) unnecessary to talk about here i don't think (laughs) Because I was also going to be like, okay, well, how do we feel about putting ethical in front of sadism? Like, do we want to, like, talk philosophically about the roots of sadism here? But we'll do a deep dive into sadism someday. To be continued. 
exactly. <laughs> it's, it, it's, I think it's fine. I think what is particularly fascinating about Avgi's move here is that it's the first time that I've seen sadism be presented as a potential ethical modality to operate within. Mm-hmm. I've seen masochism used as that like many, many times. Yeah, I'm a huge fan of that. Yeah, I'm a huge fan of that too. But like often the only thing I've seen for sadists is people kind of like using masochism as a way to be like both the dominant and the submissive. Like it's both a form of masochism, you know, Mm -hmm. creating the figure of the ethical sadist I think is really fantastic and brave because I think sadists can certainly be ethical. I actually like actively only want to fuck sadists. Mm. (laughs) And so I hope they can be ethical. (laughs) That feeling of overwhelm, like to encounter some feeling of overwhelm, there is no particular thing that accomplishes that. Mm -hmm. For someone, it could be something that is completely mundane for someone else. You know, maybe it could be like some what I would see as incredibly like dull force femme shit. Maybe that is like really what gets some, you know, I don't Mm -hmm. know. Or like something that doesn't even seem intense. Like I had a experience with someone where we took a bath together and it was like very mellow. Mm hmm by your standards, uh, but it was also like really intense. Yeah, absolutely. Just by way of example. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it, and it can be difficult <laughs> to know exactly which of those things like will put you into a state of overwhelm. Yeah. Avgi is very clear about this, that overwhelm is not something to achieve or a goal one sets out to accomplish, but it's an experience yeah. that are unrives unbidden. So if your only goal is overwhelm, that's not the point. It's about creating spaces in which overwhelm can occur, as opposed to seeing overwhelm as a sign that something has gone wrong. The unethical sadist is just like, I'm going to overwhelm you. And all they're doing is subjecting you to their own will. And thus they miss the possibility to create a condition for overwhelm versus the ethical sadist that is doing all of this careful work and is interrogating themselves as much as they can, like and lingering in their own opacity and like trying to learn how to read you. And then recognizing that opacity as well and sort of welcoming and ushering in the enigmatic. It's really fun that Avgi in some ways sees the psychoanalyst role is to be an artisan of unbinding, which such a stance informs a deeply ethical form of sadism, a sadism that is driven by the exigency of doing what is necessary, what is required to intervene against the other's effort to master their unconscious through binding. Lots of the time when we talk about these things, there's sometimes we're given critiques, like we're trying to say overwhelm is good for everyone. Like Avki is also very clear here that overwhelm is not something that is for everyone. Not all of these things are going to be things that are attractive to, to all people. And some people are just like not going to want the demands of those things. They're not going to be want to be the ethical sadist or the person who experiences that overwhelm. And certainly this is not something that we should advocate for, for like day-to-day interactions. <laughs> the reason that Raven and Isabella are able to make that scene and have it be so meaningful is because of this knowingness of each other and built up understanding. And so like, yes, like also, as a few chapters back with Adam's experience in the bathhouse with the grotesque stranger, you can have an experience of overwhelm with a complete stranger. And those experiences can be completely valuable. But that's also like not where we're talking about like ethical sadism, you know? 
it's not like completely random relation without any form of care or communication. Just to echo that with a quote, in offering this clinical case and in elaborating the importance of resisting the impulse to bind and offer meaning to the other, I'm not advocating for a method of being in everyday relations. The stance is to be reserved for very particular forms of relations and contexts, and it needs time to cultivate and unfold. There is a everydayness to it in some regards, so something like the coffee just gathers so much signification, but you can't unpack that just in any context, or you can't create the conditions for the sort of scene that Isabella and Raven had without their relationship, without those conditions. So again, we're not just going out and about like overwhelming everyone. We're not like trying to mind people for their trauma and just be like, okay, this is a meaningful encounter. And like my job is just to incite overwhelm all the time <laughs> to literally everyone. And that's the ethical way. And that's the way of being open to everything. It's like, no, 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 no. This has its limits. Like limit consent has limits. Mm -hmm. <laughs> There's an everydayness, but it isn't a set of tools with which you should apply to all of your relations. I think really important to understanding this is how... Avgi talks about dysregulation and discomfort, like that overwhelm can be very uncomfortable, like that is part of the point. But this disruption, however mm -hmm. difficult, is not always or necessarily an indication that something is going wrong, but that something is going on. It has like touched on something and that process can be hard, but just because we have an emotional experience that is very intense or an embodied experience that is very intense, we often have an impulse to shark away from that and saying that like that doesn't necessarily make it wrong. That's also like mm. playing with fire sometimes, as she jokes on a different page, sometimes <laughs> literal fire. Um, mm. Sometimes you do have a interaction that goes genuinely badly, but it is through that level of accountability for like the power that you have or that you're like giving away that you're actually able to like take account for that as opposed to a sadist that just completely flexes their will and then like doesn't take accountability for the immense amount of vulnerability that they're being put in and also vice versa mm. that the sadist is being put in vulnerability like by the masochist so to quote i've wanted to show what may come out of making ourselves passable to experience if we allow ourselves to be disrupted and to have the terms by which we understand ourselves contested, if we let ourselves travel into territories that make us profoundly uncomfortable without reaching to bind and thus to master the unintelligible that opens up in the encounter with opacity. Most importantly, I wanted to convey that such experiences do not necessarily culminate in traumatization, as is often the fear. It's sometimes, I think, very difficult. Even people that like say that they're into kink or BDSM Lots of those people are not necessarily actually okay with states of overwhelm. That experience is something that they may shirk away from because it takes a lot of demand from both sides to be able to participate in that ethically. Mm. It's like within that ineffable, unintelligible way in which those experiences interact with our unconscious are literally ineffable or things that we cannot fully articulate like through their embodiedness that is the thing that makes them so religious it's interesting you know to tie back to Bataille we could see how erotism is very much at play in all of this when Bataille talks about inner experience that kind of like self-sovereignty 
that through these experiences of overwhelm, which you would call like eroticism, that like shatter the ego to get as close to death without dying, that kind of inner part that is the ungraspable in ourselves, which Freud would call the unconscious, is able to be confronted in some way to have that aspect become something that is actually perceptible or something that can change in some meaningful way. To try to grasp that within language and within rationality is always to come short. But through these experiences, there is something profound and religious about that that cannot really be expressed unless you do it. (laughs) (laughs) That's the draw to overwhelm. Mm Mm-hmm. All right, so time for confessions. Keeping secrets from my ex-girlfriend still feels like lying. I mean, also she's your ex. Like, is it things that are about her? I, I don't know. I've been thinking a lot about the kind of entitlement people feel over their loved one's private inner lives, specifically lovers, specifically women too, who just feel a sense of ownership yeah for sure I'm a very confessional person so definitely if I'm like close friends or like dating you I you probably know all the things but like (laughs) that doesn't mean that you're not allowed to like have an inner life (laughs) that is your own (laughs) your fantasies your secrets they're your own I regret most of my slut era and having compulsive sex for validation from shitty guys honestly same Aw, but like regret though, that brought you to where you are now. See, that's what I was thinking. It's just like you can have slut era 2.0 and then yeah. slut era 3.0. <laughs> like that with transness a lot, you know, the whole thing of like, oh, don't you wish you could transition when you were earlier? And like, yeah, like part of me does wish that I, you know, had had those resources like when I was a little kid and that I had had that language. But at the same time, like the things even the shitty things are what brought me to where I am now. And so all of the good and happiness that I have now is only because of all of those things having occurred. Mm. So I try not to like think about my like shitty dysphoria, baby alcoholic days as like regret, you know? I also think as one becomes more comfortable with one's identity and then also as you gain a more nuanced understanding of sex and sexuality, you can go back and you can, rethink through those memories differently so like the notion of a body count like there are incidences where i'm just like eh, do i want that to count like is that important to me like once you decouple sex from oh it's a penis and vagina in order for it to count as sex then you're just like well maybe that just doesn't count as sex actually maybe the times that i did that like aren't important to me and ought not to define who i was and who i am well and what's even a body like yeah a body count no matter what it is doesn't define anything no no it's just like (laughs) it's the most stupid concept just like um control alt delete (laughs) yeah yeah for sure if Um, if that feels good mm -hmm. definitely I like listening to my housemates have sex through the walls. Cool. Yeah, that sounds fine. <laughs> I personally like don't love hearing sex of like people in like housing situations in the few situations I've had where that's the case, but I'm glad that it doesn't bother you and that you like yeah. it. Yeah, it's interesting. I've lived in apartments and most of my adult life and I've never like I can't think of times that I've like really heard 
I know that like walls are thin or like the internet went crazy because that person tried to give two warm beers and a long note to tell their neighbors to have sex quietly. But that's just not an issue that I've had. But maybe it's also just because I, I listen to music or I'm watching a movie and I'll just yeah. turn up the volume. But this person likes it, so good for them. Living in a city is to like hear other sounds. Like the idea that like if you hear sex, that that's like the worst thing in the world. Like some people act like it is. Like come on, like get over yourself. Yeah. Part of the reason I really love my new housing situation now is like I've lived in tiny apartments with my partner for, you know, we've been together like a dozen years. And most of the time it's been an incredibly small, tiny living spaces. Mm -hmm. And now that we act, I can like host in my space. That's like a wild privilege Mm. (laughs) after living on top of each other in like studio apartments or at best one room apartments for almost my whole little life. Yeah, I'm a stealth trans woman who is in too deep, but it's not really sinful, you know? But you know, yeah. Hmm. Yeah, being stealth is fine, but, like, I also get that feeling of, you know. Yeah, you know. Yeah, (laughs) I know. I get it. I really like being in situations around, like, not trans and queer people where, like, people sort of know me and people don't know I'm trans. Like, that's great. So I am into being stealth in that way. But, like, I think it would be harder to be stealth around, like, more actual community, not, like, work. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Okay. Final one beginning new relationships and enjoying being cared for worried i'm inauthentic yeah sad why is that inauthentic yeah i don't know there's not a whole lot of information here wanting normative things is okay yeah and being cared for is great nothing like that like that's the great thing about having relationships of all different kinds is caring for and being cared for is the joys of life Mm-hmm. being self-sufficient is overrated yeah and also just a complete myth yeah exactly all right and that is it for today mm-hmm. thank you so much for sharing with us as always you can go and support our work at www.patreon.com drunkchurch there you can sign up and get access to bonus episodes, a community discord where you can discuss the episodes or just hang out. Discounts on our merch store, which you can also find through our Instagram and Twitter. We encourage you to engage with the show, share it with your friends, comment at us, uh, you know, whatever. If you hated it, (laughs) tell us why. Or, you know, why not? constructive criticism only don't just send us hate slide into my dms if you want some exciting stickers we got some stickers printed i mean you can also send us hate if you want (laughs) but i will probably just screenshot it and then like make fun of it or like make it into a thing so (laughs) so like yeah always feel free (laughs) just a warning god bless god bless Bless you for being an angel Just when it seemed that heaven was not for me Bless you for building a new Just when my old dream crumbled so helplessly, 
In that vine-covered chapel on the hill Your face was a hymn that lingers still So bless you, my darling, my angel Heaven is mine and life is divine with you Bless you, darling, for being an angel. Just when it seemed that heaven was not for me. Bless you for building a new dream. Just when my old dream crumbled so helplessly in that vine covered chapel on the hill your face was a hymn that lingers still so bless you my darling my Heaven is more 